This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Episode 445, submission number 2502, the Overmeyer Network, a.k.a. the United Network. The Overmeyer Network, also known as the United Network, was a television network that launched on May 1st, 1967 and closed on June 1st of 1967. Guys, over the decades, we've had plenty of channels try to make themselves the fourth network. We could say Dumont. And Dumont was actually really good early on, and then it petered out in, around like 1954, and ABC sort of took that mantle. But uh, if we look at other channels, specifically, I think we can talk about Fox. Fox was really the first fourth network to actually do something, even though it had its struggles. Even though it started in 86, 87, it really didn't hit the super big time until 1990, primarily to uh, that animated family that's like got jaundice. You know what I'm talking about. But it did have success, obviously, early on, Married with Children and Tracy Ellman show. We also had WB and at the same time UPN, so you actually had two networks striving to be the fifth network. And ultimately, as we know, they merged together and became the CW. And then you had MyTV. Is that even still a thing? It's not a network per se as it is a syndicated distribution model. Yeah, Channel 9 here is still My9. Wow, I did not know that still exists. And obviously we could talk about Ion or PAX or I or the different names it's had over the last 25 plus years. And that legit could be, eh, we'll say the sixth network. I think the hierarchy would be CW is number five right now. Ion, I think, is solid six. And actually, I didn't know this, but taking a look at the ratings for the year in terms of viewership numbers, I did not know Ion is in the top 10, top 10 viewers overall. It did break it down into uh, like 18 to 39 and adults. The top 10 rating came with adults. Now, obviously, it's a little bit lower for the 18 to 39s, but I was surprised by that because every time I look at Ion, I just flip by it. Because, Mike, everybody wants to watch marathons of old reruns of Blue Bloods. Okay, I get that to a point. It's like all they show is crime serials. They show Blue Bloods, like you said. They show at least one version of CSI. There's no comedy on there. There's no variety. It's just basically just like crime uh, serials and not even American ones. I've seen some show from Canada. I don't remember what it is, but it's like, this is weird, but people are watching it. So yeah, we have a history 
of trying to find a competitor to the big three, now the big four. But if we go back in time about 57 years, there was another network that was around for a little while. It was originally called the Overmeyer Network. And I think we need to talk about the person who created the Overmeyer Network first. A gentleman by the name of Daniel Overmeyer, and the best way I can describe him is he is the warehouse king of Toledo. Abe Froman is the sausage king of Chicago. Daniel Overmeyer is the warehouse king of Toledo. So he started acquiring TV stations around the United States. Obviously, starting with uh, Toledo first, his uh, hometown. And his goal was he wanted to create a network that really focused on his conservative beliefs. Not necessarily overly religious, but he was against smut. And he even declared as much. And he created this network with the leadership of former ABC president Oliver Trays. It was scheduled to debut in fall of 1967 with anywhere from 75 to 125 affiliates. And the original plan was an eight-hour broadcast day. So you could see that with uh, a lot of the channels that wanted to become the fourth or fifth networks around here. Because remember Fox, and they still do this, primetime is two hours, and they really don't do any sort of Saturday morning stuff anymore. And... They don't do weekdays necessarily. CW, same thing. Ion, well, again, they're like not 24-7 reruns, but probably like 18 hours a day reruns. So among the programs that were going to be offered on the Overmeyer Network, they had to deal with uh, UPI, United Press International, to provide each station with news. Sort of like a little news capsule thing. Like if you remember the uh, four films back in like the 40s and 50s, they'd show news clips in like little two, three minute segments. Think of that. It wasn't a full-fledged newscast like World News Tonight or anything you'd see on CNN or, uh, or, or any other network. It was just a little blast of news. And also among the programs that were going to be offered was... Tales from the Great Book, which, as you can guess, was a Bible series, an animated Bible series. But bigger than that, they did have plans to show sports. And actually, the Overmeyer Network and the Continental Football League, they had a three-year contract to air 14 Saturday night games on the network starting in fall of 1966. And I told Greg before the show, I said, you're going to learn about a new football league because I said... There's this competitor to the AFL and the NFL in the mid-60s, and he mentioned the World Football League. That was in the early 70s. But yeah, the Continental Football League was going to have their games aired on the Overmeyer Network. Now, I'm sure the question that everybody's asking, including Greg, is what is the Continental Football League? Now, hold on. I have a question. Oh, before we get to the Continental Football League, yes. You said Saturday nights, right? Yes. So obviously they would not be playing in the fall to avoid college football, right? Uh, the research I did said specifically fall of 1966 after Labor Day. What? Well, was college football 
on a Saturday night, a big thing in 1966-67. Oh, yeah, you're right. So getting back to the Continental Football League, it ran from 1965 to 1969. And they actually had teams, not just in the United States, but since it's Continental, they had teams in Canada and Mexico, too. They actually had some name people playing on those teams. Sam Weish, Gero Yepremian, Otis Sistrunk, Ken Stabler. Ken Stabler, obviously Super Bowl champion with the Raiders. Gero Yepremian, you know, from the, uh, yeah. But also Sam Weish. I'd be remiss not to mention the famous speech he did. What was it? Like with the Bengals? It was 1989 in Cincinnati because... People in Cincinnati were throwing snowballs under the field. Oh, yeah. And he said, you don't live in Cleveland. You live in Cincinnati. Will the next person that sees anybody throw anything onto this field, point them out, or get them out of here. You don't live in Cleveland. You live in Cincinnati. R.I.P. Sam Weich. I don't have a full list of the teams. I have the uh, standings for each season. And there are, like I said, quite a few teams here. It says 22 teams. Toronto Rifles, Philadelphia Bulldogs, Norfolk Neptunes, Hartford Charter Oaks, Brooklyn Dodgers, Orlando Panthers, Charleston Rockets, Montreal Beavers, Richmond Rebels, Wheeling Ironmen. Oh, by the way, who went 0-14 in the 1966 season. He also had, looks like starting in 1967, Akron Vulcans, Eugene Bombers, Long Beach Admirals, Orange County Ramblers, Sacramento Buccaneers, San Jose Apaches, Seattle Rangers, Victoria Steelers, Ohio Valley Ironmen started in 1968, Michigan Arrows started in 1968, Charleston Rockets, Chicago Owls, Arkansas Diamonds, Indianapolis Capitals, Quad City Raiders slash Las Vegas Cowboys. That makes it sound like they may have moved in that season. And I'm sure that the NFL's Cowboys and Raiders did not like the use of those names. And the Mexico team, from what I can tell, is the Mexico Golden Aztecs, which ceased operations and forfeited the part of the 1969 schedule that they didn't play. Now I'm curious to see how many games they played if they had a forfeit in the middle of the season. Two and six. They played eight games. They won two. And speaking of Las Vegas Cowboys, Greg, you're not going to believe this, where they played. Where? Cashman Field. Oh, well, they have something in common with the Vegas Vipers. But I guarantee you Cashman Field back then was much more playable than what happened in the XFL last season. I just find it weird that another team played football there 55 years earlier. By the way, Mike, on the way to my house, and I'll probably have it by next week, the XFL shop is discounting a lot of their T-shirts now that they're merging with the USFL. So guess who got a Vegas Vipers long sleeve T-shirt for 11 bucks? We've said it for going on five years. Greg hates money. And it normally priced at $40. Like I said, as we've mentioned, Greg absolutely abhors money. But we're not here to talk about the Continental Football League, and we're not here to talk about Greg's spending habits. We're here to talk about the Overmeyer Network. So, yeah, 
it was going to have a little bit of everything. They had plans to show sports. They had plans to show cartoons, albeit biblical cartoons. They actually had plans at one point to show a different genre of show every night. So one night you might get dramas. One night you might get game shows. One night you might get some other genre, which is all nice and good, but uh, there's a little bit deeper story uh, into the Overmeyer Network and what happened. So the original plan for the Overmeyer Network was to have 125 affiliates. And actually, one thing that I saw earlier said that they had 123 or at least 123 channels lined up to carry its programs, not necessarily be a full-fledged affiliate, because I saw there were CBS affiliates listed, there were ABC affiliates. So just some method of transmitting Overmeyer Network programming. Uh, in July of 1966, the Overmeyer Network planned to provide its affiliates with a two-hour live variety show originating from the Hotel Hacienda in Las Vegas. Two hours live every night. Pretty daring if you ask me. And this show would come to be known as the Las Vegas show, which takes us to episode 445, submission number 2502B, the Las Vegas show. The Las Vegas show aired on the Overmeyer Network from May 1st, 1967 to June 1st, 1967 for a total of 23 episodes. And that 23 episodes is seven more than your traditional crock block. And we know what a crock block is. The number of aired episodes of Salvage One, the number of total episodes of Husband Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show and Schooled and J.J. Starbuck and Uncle Crock's Block and, oh, there's so many that I'm forgetting. Oh, Jabberjaw and Tiger King and Little Bush and something I did during my winter break since last week we didn't cover any shows and we did the year in review before that. One thing I did right around Christmas time, I went on a big hunt of shows that had 16 episodes. And one commonality I saw among all the shows that I found that had 16 episodes, they were all Hanna-Barbera productions. Sit back because this is a big list and each of these series had 16 episodes. Oh boy, I can't wait for this. This is the meat and potatoes of the episode, guys. So just, yeah, like I said, get a sandwich, kick back. The Pebbles and Bam Bam Show. Help, it's the Hair Bear Bunch. The Amazing Chan and the Chan Clan. Josie and the Pussycats. And, amazingly enough, Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space. They both ran for exactly 16 shows. Speed Buggy, Super Friends, Goober and the Ghost Chasers, the Adams Family Animated Series, Hong Kong Fooey, Devlin, Partridge Family 2200 AD, The Tom and Jerry Show from 1975, The Great Grape Ape Show, The Scooby-Doo Dynamut Hour, Challenge of the Super Friends, The New Schmoo, Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo, Drag Pack, and last but not least, The Quickie Koala Show, which I know is absolutely beloved to the one and only Chico. Damn right. No, it's beloved to me, so it's two people, the Quickie Koala Show. I didn't know you liked the Quickie Koala Show. I know Chico loved it. You need to get you some Quickie Koala, Mike. You need to be educated on this. 
I just don't share the same love of it that you guys have. Now, time out. The only reason I found out about the Quickie Koala show's existence is because my good friend, the late Roy Braxton, brought it up on an episode of WrestleCrap Radio, the Quickie Koala show. So that's why it became so beloved to me, the Quickie Koala show. So, yeah, going back to the Las Vegas show, before we start talking about the Las Vegas show, we need to step back a little bit because our patriarch of this network, Mr. Overmeyer, he actually sold 80% of his stake in the network before it even went to air. Stunning, shrewd, maybe in retrospect. So the Las Vegas show, it originated from the Hotel Hacienda in Las Vegas, appropriate enough. And it was hosted by well-known comedian Bill Dana. Now, not every affiliate aired the Las Vegas show live. Some did. And it was a two-hour show and went up against Carson. I believe it aired from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. But a number of affiliates either aired it the next day in the afternoon or on a one-night delay. And some of them even showed it as late-night programming on weekends. And actually, again, doing research, it looks like in New York City, the biggest... Get it out of your system, damn it! New York City. You heard me, New York City. New York City. They actually aired it like three in the morning. Biggest market in the United States, and they're showing your show at three in the morning. Of the 123 affiliates that I talked about earlier, only 106 stations actually aired the Las Vegas show. And just between you and me, it's really tough not to say the Las Vegas Gambit show. I'm really trying to, I I want to throw a gambit in there, but it's like, no, it's the Las Vegas show. And even with its short run, the Las Vegas show had quite a roster of guests. Listen to these names. On the premiere, Milton Berle and Jack Palance. And then throughout the course of the series, you had Alan and Rossi, Sarah Vaughn, Rich Little, Julius LaRosa, Arthur Godfrey, Della Reese, Pat Morita, Giselle McKenzie, Dave Madden. You have Ruben Kincaid on this. Liberace. Is there anybody more Vegas than Liberace? Elvis. I thought you were going to say Wayne Newton, but Liberace, I think, epitomized Vegas in the 60s. You also had Rod Serling, Hugh Hefner, John Wayne, Don Rickles, Marty Ingalls, Robert Clary, J.P. Morgan, Pete Barbuti, who we talked about last month on the New Liars Club, Xavier Cugat, Charo, Joanne Worley, and Ann Elder. So you had some quality names here. This was not like just digging up somebody off the street and be like, oh, you want 50 bucks to you know sing and dance or tell a joke? No, they had quality names on this show. And actually, the level of quality was so high that the first episode of the Las Vegas show actually had better ratings than the Tonight Show. Like, vastly better ratings. Now, admittedly, again, first night, and they pulled out the big guns. I mentioned Milton Burl and Jack Palance, among others. So the ratings were there. What happened? 
I can't do that sort of voice that Chica does. What happened? What happened? That wasn't really the voice I was expecting, but I'll take it. So one reason I think this failed is the United Network, which was the new name of uh, the Overmeyer Network. I should add that. Once Overmeyer sold out his share of the network, it now became branded as the United Network. And as far as I can tell, that's the name that it used in its month of broadcasting. Did not go by Overmeyer Network. It went by United Network. And the United Network asked for $6,000 per minute of advertising for the Las Vegas show, which is roughly a third the going rate for the Tonight Show at the time. However, there were a few takers on the advertising. That might be a problem right there. If you have one show and you can't get the advertisers to pop aboard your show, you're not going to last very long. Now, there's no evidence of the show. So all we can go by is celebrity listings. There's some interviews out there. Deeper Beauty did an interview 11 or 12 years ago, and there's a transcript of it online getting into why the Las Vegas show failed and why the United Network failed. His interview basically corroborates what I'm going to mention about the downfall of the United Network here. So on June 22nd of 1967, the United Network filed a bankruptcy petition which listed the network's assets as $1.132 million, but at the same time, they had liabilities exceeding $1.8 million. So there's over a $600,000 difference there. That $1.8 million also included, believe it or not, $25,700 to Bill Dana. I don't know whether he didn't get paid at all, but he didn't get paid a significant portion of money. The United Network went to court so that it can continue operations while paying off its debts. The bankruptcy filing did not mark the end of the United Network, however. Under a month after filing for bankruptcy, James W. Nichols, who was the executive director at the United Network, had plans for the network to make a comeback. After working up to 20 hours a day attempting to line up financiers and meeting with creditors. Regarding the network's comeback, Nichols said, and I quote, when we go back on the air, we'll have three to four hours of programming a day. We're looking at a wide range of programs, specials, regular features, variety shows, and documentaries. We may very well revive a show from Vegas. Asked if Bill Dana would host the new show from Vegas, Nichols responded, I've got a great deal of respect for Bill, but I don't know if he will fit into our plans for the future. Nichols expected the revived United Network to serve over 70 independent stations by September 1967. When told that the network would need 25 to $30 million in order just to get off the ground, Nichols said, if we operated the way the networks do, we'd need that, but we're not going to do it that way. We make no bones about having any grandiose plans or of being an overnight competition to the networks. So what went wrong with the United Network? Nichols said that when his group bought out Overmeyer, it found itself with no creative staff, no technical staff, and no facilities, despite being committed to go on air in a month. It was a nightmare, believe me, said Nichols. The main issue in terms of the money, the liabilities, 
had to deal with the transmission lines, which were leased from AT&T. They're expensive. Let's say that. And again, Las Vegas show wasn't getting those sponsors, even though they're asking $6,000 a minute. And tonight's show, I think, was asking about $17,000 a minute. They had nobody buying into it, and they were just hemorrhaging money. Now, I do have a list of some of the affiliates. I'm going to just briefly go through some of them. I'm not going to give the whole list, but also I do have some of the stations that aired the Las Vegas show. So among the affiliates of the United Network, you had WPIX 11 in New York, KHJ in Los Angeles, WGN Chicago, WPHL in Philadelphia, WCCB in Charlotte, KEMO in San Francisco, WKBD in Detroit, WBMO in Atlanta, Toledo, WDHO. Oh, by the way, I should say WDHO. Daniel H. Overmeyer. He liked doing that with the stations he bought. He named stations after his wife or his daughter, his kids, relatives. So if you see back in the 60s, a station that ends in the letter O, it's possibly an Overmeyer network or Overmeyer owned at that point. So yeah, W. Daniel H. Overmeyer, WDHO 24 in Toledo, ATNT in Seattle, KZAZ Tucson, KWGN in Denver, WECO in Pittsburgh, WMET in Baltimore, WTTG in Washington, D.C., KPHO in Phoenix, KICU in Fresno, KLOC in Modesto, California, and KJDO in Houston. Some of these channels signed on to the network, but other channels in the market would air the Las Vegas show. Like, for example, WBMO, which right now is WATL, a my network TV affiliate. They signed on to the network, but the Las Vegas show actually aired on WAGA Channel 5, which is now a Fox affiliate. Well, going through the stations that showed the Las Vegas show, you see a lot of them have CBS affiliation. When you think about it, it makes sense because NBC has this thing called The Tonight Show, which is a juggernaut. But also, at the same time, ABC had a reasonably new show in late night, The Joey Bishop Show. And in the Cleveland area, on WEWS, the ABC affiliate here, they showed the Las Vegas show the next afternoon. And also they showed it on Sunday nights. So you don't have the direct competition with the Joey Bishop show. Now you've got filler in like the mid-afternoon. I think it aired like, I want to say 2 to 3.30 or, or 1.30 to 3.30. And then it aired like after the news on Sundays, like 11.30 to 1.30. So you didn't compete with the network programming at that point. Just very weird. But yeah, I mean, it makes sense that a lot of these channels are CBS affiliates because they had nothing going on at late night in uh, 1967. So that's our little look at the Overmeyer network. Uh, what can we say besides the Overmeyer network and... Las Vegas show, 
they tried. I mean, they legit tried. Problem is, maybe the powers that be, Daniel Overmeyer or people who ran it after he sold out, maybe they didn't understand the costs that were associated with running a network, or maybe they just didn't have the ability to get uh, advertisers aboard. And while they couldn't get those advertisers, the cost of running the network just kept going up and up and up. And unfortunately, the Overmeyer Network and the Las Vegas show, they became one-month wonders. And they're a very little talked about thing on TV. I mean, seriously, when I brought this up, I think Greg and Chico both sort of had the reaction of, what is the Overmeyer Network? And I told them, this was a competitor back in the 60s. And actually, I'm not even going to take full credit for talking about this because the first place I heard about it was the Omnibus podcast. I don't remember the exact reason, but Ken Jennings mentioned the Overmeyer Network. And as soon as I heard that, it's like, oh, good. There's an idea for something to talk about on the podcast because we've talked about plenty of short-lived shows. Yes, the Las Vegas show obviously qualifies, but we've never talked about a short-lived network, especially one as obscure as this. Now, it's funny you mentioned Omnibus because by coincidence, my background is a subject of a previous Omnibus episode. Mike, do you want to explain what this background is behind me? If I knew, I would be glad to share it with you. It's Sergeant Stubby. It's like a dog that was famous around World War One, And they made like an animated movie about this dog like six or seven years ago. And I gotta say, this dog, his reaction with his tongue sticking out, it's very cute. It is a cute reaction. I've never heard of this movie. I'm guessing it's sort of in the same vein as like Balto? Something like that. And he was a good dog. Of course, Balto was a good dog. He was voiced by Kevin Bacon. I was talking about Sergeant Stubby, but yes, Balto was a good boy, too. No, going back to Balto, of course he was a good boy because he was a husky, and every husky is a good dog. And since it was voiced by Kevin Bacon, I bet it could dance. Let's just get to the Match Game Hollywood Squares recap thingy, whatever. Play the music, me in the past. It's time for This weekend Match Game, Hollywood Square, Our History! Hey Mike, I've been looking forward to this week for a long time! No kidding. Gee, I wonder why. We're up to the third week in January of 1984, and... Well, you heard Johnny. Johnny's eager to talk about this week, and I know why Johnny's eager to talk about this week. That's right. I was on this week. He was on this week. He filled in for Gene Wood for the Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday episodes this week. Which is odd, because Johnny Olson doesn't usually announce NBC shows. But he's part of the Goodson Todman family. I get that. And the thing is, if you look back at Goodson Todman NBC shows. He definitely did Card Sharks. Didn't do it well. I think his uh, cadence doing the poems was absolutely horrible, if I remember correctly. 
Yeah, I really sucked at writing those. But and also, let's remember, Mind Readers. He was the announcer on Mind Readers. Oh, don't remind me of that pile of crap. Well, you got paid and the checks cleared, right? Yes, I did. Then stop complaining. I'm trying to think if there are even any other shows that uh, Goods of Time and shows that were on NBC because they all aired on CBS, like you mentioned. Password Plus, but he didn't announce that. Are we sure? Yeah, Gene announced Password Plus. We all know this. Well, but he may have been a guest, a sub announcer. Yeah. 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 Is either him or Rich Jeffries was on the speed dial. I don't think Rich Jeffries was doing announcing at that point. Wait, my mistake. He did announce a week of Password Plus, at least. Looks like two weeks. That's right, Johnny Olsen announced two weeks of Password Plus. Shut up, that's not even a good impression of me. I just wanted to gauge your reaction. Hey, hey, let's get back to the uh, third week of January on MGHSH, shall we? Is that what the kids call it, MGHSH? That's what the kids I know call it. Why is a 44-year-old man hanging out with kids? Never mind. <laughs> hey, you said it, not me. And for the record, I don't turn 44 until Friday. I got a question. Why is a 44-year-old man watching 40-year-old game show reruns with kids? You got to teach them the classics. <laughs> no, seriously. Not just game shows. Haven't I ever told you guys about when uh, I'm uh, at lunch in my classroom monitoring my seniors and I pull up some old show, I pull up ALF and they get into ALF and I pull up Family Feud with Richard Dawson back in the 70s and 80s. They're watching that. And I even did uh, the new Liars Club. They were too receptive to that, unfortunately. They did not appreciate the greatness of the new Liars Club. Well, you know, they obviously saw the episodes that didn't have from John Berber's kid's favorite show, his favorite character, Sadie LaRue, played by Don Yeso. I can't wait till we get to Frank's place. Wait a minute, we haven't even talked about who's on this week. That's what I was trying to get it back to, but Mike's going on about me turning 44 all of a sudden. You were talking about showing game shows to kids, pervert. <laughs> so as I was saying... This week, we have Bill Cullen, obviously promoting a little show. What show is that, Johnny? Hot Potato. Good. We also had Phyllis Diller, Richard Klein, Ellen Bree, Lyle Wagoner, Brian Mitchell, Linda Dano, and Mr. Black. I think everybody knows about Bill Cullen's polio. He did not walk across the stage. He was just standing on the corner stage left and they put a spotlight on him and the camera focused in on him to lessen the burden the Friday show of this week something very interesting happened the Hollywood Squares board totally malfunctioned lost all power and instead of doing what they did on the Hollywood Squares three, four years later where they'd actually have placards with X's and O's on it. You actually had the celebrities, and I don't know who thought of this and didn't have like a plan B set in place. They actually had the celebrities hold over their heads, they crossed the arms for X's, or they interlocked their their hands to form an O. So janky, so cheap, 
I'm just surprised that Mark Goodson, of all people, didn't have, like I said, that plan B in place of just little cardboard X's and O's or a a piece of cardboard or plexiglass or whatnot with an X on one side and an O on the other. Just because, you know, if you've actually got to like hold your hand up over your head for an extended period of time, that's got to be potentially painful. Uh, You know, maybe arms will fall asleep or who knows. I got to say, though, Linda Dano, when we get a couple months from now, oh boy, with Linda Dano, it's going to be hilarity ensuing with a certain contestant. And that's all I'm going to say. Oh, yeah, we're a number of months away from that. Nothing really big happened in terms of big wins. Well, there were a couple of $20,000 wins that week, but nothing in terms of anybody retiring. So that's it for this week. We're going to toss it back to me to close the show. Wow! Hello, may I help you? You can sure as hell try. Hi, I'm Abe Froman. Party of three for 12. Is there a problem? You're Abe Froman. That's right. I'm Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. Yeah, that's me. Listen, young man, entre nous, I'm very busy here. Why don't you take the kids and go back to the clubhouse? Are you suggesting that I'm not who I say I am? I'm suggesting that you leave before I have to get snooty. Snooty? Snotty. Snotty? Okay, Abe, (laughs) let's go. No, I'm not going anywhere. No, we like to be seated. Listen, young man, either you take the field trip outside or I'm going to have to call the police. The pol- You're gonna call the police on me? Yes. Fine. As a matter of fact, I'll call them myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> call the police. <sighs> this will be a hoot. Episode number 446. Submission number 996. Acceptable TV. Acceptable TV aired on VH1 from March 23rd to May 11th, 2007 for eight episodes. That's your old half of a crock block. And we know what a crock block is. It's the number of episodes of Jabberjaw and the Bebbles and Bam Bam Show and Help, It's the Hair Bear Bunch and the Amazing Chan and the Chan Clan and Josie and the Pussycats and Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space and Speed Buggy and Super Friends and Goober and the Ghost Chasers and the Adams Family Animated Series and Hong Kong Fooey and Devlin and Partridge Family 2200 AD and the Tom and Jerry Show from 1975 and the Great Grey Ape, Ape Show and the Scooby-Doo and Dynamite Hour and the Challenge and Super Friends and the new Schmoo and Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo and Drag Pack and the Quick Koala Show and that's just the Hanna-Barbera shows. And now for a brief synopsis as well as the theme music, here's a disembodied female voice. This is Ozone from VH1. He's here to design your title sequence. Okay, Ozone, listen carefully. I see charts, I see graphs, I see a flying cell phone that morphs into a hipster who may or may not be in a wheelchair. I see men holding check marks. It all takes place in a blue futuristic void, and I want our logo to look like it was designed by 30 people on a conference call. How soon can you have that done? It's done now. Run it. Welcome. You're about to see five television shows, each no longer than the average span of attention. After the show, please vote for your favorite using the internet or your cell phone. Next week, the two most acceptable shows will be back with a new episode. 
the other three, will be canceled and replaced with new shows. We hope this makes your TV more acceptable. This is Acceptable TV. We've arrived at the mid to late 2000s when the fortunes of BH1 were dependent less upon the Love and Hip Hop franchise and more upon pop culture. The network by this time has pretty much taken the MTV tack and decided we're not going to air music videos as much anymore. Instead, we're going to air shows about celebrities and all of this could basically be traced back to the success of the i love series and how that spun off best week ever which was good by the way but the problem is it's only half an hour vh1 needed something to air out of that to complement best week ever and keep the audience from best week ever so they decided to take a chance on this show but before we talk about this show we have to talk about a stage show and for that we go back to 2002 when tv writers dan Harmon and rob schrab created what they called the channel 101 film festival how does this work well Every month, Channel 101 will screen 10 five-minute pilot mini-films, and a live audience at the Downtown Independent in Los Angeles will decide which five continue as a series for the next screening, much of the way that TV programs are rated and managed. So the five pilots that get the most votes will follow up with another episode at the next Channel 101 while the other five are cancelled. And five new pilots take their place. And I remember, I think this was the first time Channel 101 that I was aware of The Lonely Island because they did a show on there called The Boo, which was a parody of The O.C., This was before they went to Saturday Night Live, Andy Samberg, and the other two. According to the website, Channel 101 was a chance to sit in the worn-out chair of the fat network exec, drunk on the blood of lowly artists whose right to exist is given in exchange for their ability to nourish. You run the network. You pick the programming. Somewhere in the mid-2000s, BH1 actually watched a screening of the Channel 101 Film Festival. They liked what they saw and approached Dan Harmon and Rob Schrab to create and develop sort of a televised version of the show. And in the televised version, it would be instead of one hour of 10 five-minute pilots, it would be 30 minutes of five two-and-a-half-minute pilots and one winner chosen from the web. Because this was about the time when we saw interactive reality television at its finest, thanks to American Idol and other shows that used text messaging and weblogs and 
all of that fun stuff. Dan Harmon and Rob Trab they teamed up with another Channel 101 regular contributor, man by the name of Jack Black, to create and produce Acceptable TV. In Acceptable TV, it's basically a sketched comedy series with a regular troupe of actors performing five pilots no longer than two and a half minutes. And they also had room for a sixth pilot, the web winner. And the way they chose that is there are five shows generated by you, the viewer, and the person with the most votes in their film will be chosen to air alongside the five pilots. For no other prize than you get television clout on basic cable. So how does a typical episode of Acceptable TV work? The troupe performs five pilots of no more than two and a half minutes. You vote by going to acceptable.tv or by texting the number of your favorite film to a number that they give you. Votes go until 3 o'clock the following Monday because this aired on Friday. You had the entire weekend to vote. At the close of voting, the two pilots with the most votes will go on to another episode. The other three are canceled and replaced with three more pilots. And we repeat over and over again. One of the pilots would always be the animated pilot, and that is usually created and produced by troop member and animated producer Justin Roiland. So let's talk about who is in this cast, because this entire cast is full of Channel 101 veterans, and perhaps the funniest, most clever comedians undiscovered at the time in Hollywood. We have Dan Harmon, who, of course, is best known for creating Community, Rick and Morty, and some show on Fox about a thing. You're incorrect. What was the list again? Community, Rick and Morty. And that's it. Not going to acknowledge that piece of crap, Opolis. I'm a piece of crap. He did help write Strange Planet with Nathan Pyle, though. I love that show. He did Crapopolis too, and that negates everything. Except for Community. Community is good. Because who doesn't love Dr. Ken on Community? Among other people, yes. Then we have Justin Roiland, rubbish human being, but also known for Rick and Morty and Solar Opposites. Next is Ryan Ridley, who is known for Rick and Morty and Solar Opposites and Community. Are you seeing a pattern, guys? Then we have Chris Romano, a.k.a. Romanski, known for two things. He is the mascot on Blue Mountain State, future entry Blue Mountain State, and Greg, 
he played Ted's best friend, Punchy, on How I Met Your Mother. Oh, Punchy. Schmoesby! Punchy! Schmoesby! Punchy! Next is Drew Hancock, who was known for writing 19 episodes of Blue Mountain State and 22 episodes of Suburgatory. Nowadays, he's more of a writer. His latest opus was 10 episodes of Mr. Pickles on Adult Swim. Next is Eric Falconer, who is nowadays a producer for Blue Mountain State and How I Met Your Mother. J.D. Reisner, who is the narrator for one of your low-key favorite TV series, Drunk History. Demorg Brown, one of the legitimate actors of the group, although he wasn't really in much of anything before this show and isn't in anything since. Jennifer Flack, who is known for being in one of the uh, webisodes of Community as fake Britta in Community College Chronicles. And last but definitely not least is Jen Kirkman, who went on to become one of my favorite panelists on At Midnight. Oh, she was great on At Midnight. And speaking of, since you're hearing this on Thursday, After Midnight has debuted. I cannot wait to see it. Oh, my DVR is already season passed. I cannot wait either. Did you know she also wrote 10 episodes of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? I did not know that. So like I said, some of the funniest, most creative, most intelligent, most clever minds in Hollywood comedy that have yet to be discovered. And finally, Ryan Nagata, who was and still is involved heavily with Channel 101. Some of his shows include Your Magic Touched Me and Your Magic Touched Me Nights. I don't want to know how he was touched at night. And also Justin Roiland for some reason. Anywho, let's talk about the episodes, shall we? Because there were eight of them, and each one had five of the regular pilots and one web winner. And we're going to talk about all of them. Episode one. Featured sketches are Joke Chasers, in which a group of investigators look for the origin of several jokes. Who Farted, a deal or no deal takeoff, where one contestant has to guess who, amongst the panel of panelists, farted. Homeless James Bond, which speaks for itself. The Teen Seas, a family drama about a tiny family. And the animated pilot, Mr. Sprinkles, about the surprisingly dark life of a childhood playmate. Justin Roiland created that sketch, and you can tell that was the beginning of the Justin Roiland animated universe there. And the web winner designate was Anna Manesia by Kate Freund, a rejected pilot for Channel 101. Anna Manesia was the story of somebody who took in an injured person, nursed them back to help, and convinced them that they were a robot. 
surprisingly enough, it did not get enough votes to go to the next episode. The two most loved pilots of this episode were Homeless James Bond and Mr. Sprinkles. And they go on to episode two. Sketches include Homeless James Bond episode two, Operation Kitten Calendar. The plot of Operation Kitten Calendar was an obvious apprentice spoof. Like, very obvious. Like, you could watch it and you could say, yeah, that definitely looks like something. Medical Hospital, which is basically a medical drama with people using medical terms. Cirque du Soleil Sex Crime Investigation. Self-explanatory. And Mr. Sprinkles, Episode 2. The web winner was Leet Haxers, created by Ben Plumer. Which is basically 24 if it were told by college-age hackers from the early 2000s. By the way, nowadays, Ben Plumer is an Emmy-nominated director who has directed projects for Comedy Central, USA, True TV, ABC, VH1, G4, CW, Subaru, AT&T, Black & Decker, Harley-Davidson, Viceroy Hotels, AOL, WebSoup, Ibanez, Guitar, Jen Air, Funny or Die, Red Hour Films, Channel 101, E, Vivo, and more. You said Vivo, right? I said Vivo. Not Vivo. No. Good. My baby wants Bevo for Christmas. The two most popular pilots from this episode were Mr. Sprinkles and Operation Kitten Calendar. So they move on to episode three, where they are joined by Yo, Murder He Wrapped, which is an obvious Murder She Wrote pastiche. Shady Acres, a teenage drama about a home for rapidly aging teenagers. And shocker, all of the teenagers are played by senior citizens. And um, I'll describe this and then I'll name it. This is basically a combination of American gladiators and to catch a predator. It is called P-Word Gladiators. And the web winner for that week is episode two of Leet Haxers. No surprise, Mr. Sprinkles and Operation Kitten Calendar won that week and moved on to episode four. And joining those two are Lord of the Fills, which is basically Lord of the Flies, if it were told 500 years in the future with the descendants of Dr. Phil. Drunk Home Makeover, where a couple invites a home improvement expert to come in, get blackout drunk, and violently redo their entire house. And Law and Order Production Unit, in which a production team is looking to create a new Law and Order series. The web winner for this episode... Psychic Priest Detective, created by Wade Randall. Right now, he is a writer for Rick and Morty. The winners for this episode, Mr. Sprinkles and Operation Kitten Calendar. 
which means we get to see the season finale of Operation Kitten Calendar and the next episode of Mr. Sprinkles in episode five. And they are joined by Galians, where we have a same-sex alien couple arriving on Earth to share in their bounty. You can see sort of the genesis of solar opposites with Galians. We also have the Federal Bureau of Abdullah featuring a reformed terrorist assigned to lead an FBI field office in sitcom fashion. Hilarity does ensue. And The High Fiver, a dark, gritty crime drama involving an investigator who probes the depths of your mind by giving a high five. Your web winner is The Rappersons, created by Fun Incorporated, the team of Ernie Walker and Abed Geith, really big Channel 101 frequenters there. The winner, Mr. Sprinkles, and for some reason, Operation Kitten Calendar. And Dan said, because I believe Dan and Jen were hosting that episode, but Dan said, if you vote through Operation Kitten Calendar, we're going to put together a reunion show, and then we're cutting you off. You need help. So what do we do? We vote through Operation Kitten Calendar and Mr. Sprinkles for Episode 6, where we are also watching Red Carpet Bros, featuring bros on the red carpet. Gar, a sort of Conan the Barbarian-type sword and sorcery send-up. And Who's Gonna Train Me, featuring Chris Romano as a boxer who has five weeks to train for a fight and four contestants vying to become his trainer. It's like, I'm a big boxer. I got five weeks before a big fight. And these four people are going to compete to see who's going to train me. So who's going to train me? And your web winner this week is episode three of Leet Hacksers. The winners for this episode, and they specifically said, do not vote for Operation Kitten Counter. We find out from Justin that Operation Kitten Calendar got 18% of the vote anyway, but it was out of the top two. The top two for this episode were Mr. Sprinkles and Who's Gonna Train Me? And they are joined in episode seven by Sin Trek Left Behind, a Star Trek parody in which the crew of a starship is looking quite literally, for God in space. What does God need with a starship? We have I'm Not Racist, which features somebody similar to but legally distinct from Gallagher, who was canceled in the 1980s for making a bad joke and now is on a dating show to prove that he is not racist. He does a bad job of that, by the way. And the, be, final, and the final hold on, hold <laughs> on. I'd much rather see Gallagher too on Dean than Gallagher. And the final pilot is 
something similar to but legally distinct from The Price is Right, the game show parody The Price of Dollars. And it gets dark because it was the first show featuring the new host of The Price of Dollars, and the announcer is bitter as hell because he was supposed to be the new host. In fact, the plot line here, a cherished game show host dies and nobody likes the new one. The announcer is making the audience hate him so he can get the job. And the web winner is episode two of The Rappersons. By the way, The Rappersons is about a family. The parents are really big hip-hop bands, and the kids are, for lack of a better phrase, wickety-wickety-whack. And then we have the final episode, episode eight, where the cast is basically spending the entire budget on a lavish wraparound party and basically throwing everything about this show out the window. Now, we do have the winners from last week. I'm not racist, and who's going to train me? That's right. Mr. Sprinkles placed out of the top two. But Dan was like, you know what? We have the final episode of Mr. Sprinkles. We're going to air it. So we have I'm not racist. Who's going to train me? The final episode of Mr. Sprinkles, an animated pilot that was supposed to air in case Mr. Sprinkles lost, called Cosby's, which is basically what would happen if we told Gremlins with Mr. Black. And the final pilot is basically a clip show of all of the rejected pilots from you know, before production. Cursed tape review, speedboat confessions, and radical female hackers. Wait, wait, wait. You said speedboat confessions? Speedboat confessions. What does Jizzle Drizzle have to say? Nice callback to Thunder in Paradise. I want to know. What does Jizzle Drizzle have to confess? That it had a terrible game on the CDI. I was wondering if it was going to confess to the jizzle or the drizzle. But anyhow. And the web winner from this week was McCourt's in Session by Blame Society, the team of Matt Sloan and Aaron Yonda. And true story, this was the first big success of Channel 101's first creators to enter primetime from outside Los Angeles. Yeah, those are the guys that are behind the uh, Chad Vader stuff. You remember the Chad Vader stuff, right, Chico? I remember the Chad Vader stuff. Oh, that was really big on YouTube back in the late 2000s. And then after that, VH1 decided to take it off the schedule. They did offer to develop a second season, but only on the conditions of a lower budget and greater control on their part over the content. They could have gotten away with a lower budget, really, but handing creative control to the network was where Dan Harmon apparently drew the line. In fact, on the official Channel 101 wiki over at Fandom, we have 
a whole lot of explanation from Dan Harmon, the secretary of, and by the way, the name of the troop, they called themselves the Department of Acceptable Media. And Dan Harmon was the secretary of the Department of Acceptable Media. I want to tell you about something called Acceptable TV. It's being launched by the Department of Acceptable Media. Channel 101 alumni who, like you, once rebelled against the system. Now we are the system. Justin Roiland, J.D. Risner, Ryan Ridley, Drew Hancock, Ryan Nagata, Eric Falconer, and Chris Romano and myself are using millions of corporate dollars to write, direct, and produce a new brand of TV. The shows created by the department will have 10 times the power of Channel 101's most successful shows, packed into half the time. They will be broadcast on VH1 and available for free on the internet. And of course, the audience will get to choose which shows keep running and which are canceled. But when I say audience, I mean the actual audience, not 300 drunk hipsters at a Los Angeles dance club. Millions of viewers will watch our show and flock to our site, Acceptable.tv, where they will control the content democratically. It is at our site that we will also have an ongoing web-based competition open to the public. You make your own 2.5-minute show and upload it through your viewer profile. You don't have to glue a DV tape to a passenger pigeon's leg like at Channel 101. Just shoot and upload. If it's good enough and legally clearable, it goes on the website. And if the audience votes it back, you can make another episode. Why does it need to be clearable? And this is part of the reason why Acceptable TV failed, I think. We'll be using Rever as our site's players. It counts, views, and charges advertisers for a single frame advert at the end of your video. And guess who shares in that profit? You. The more popular your video, the more money you make. See if Channel 1 can offer you that. By the way, you keep all the rights to whatever you create, and all we get is the right to show it to people. However, the most important thing you should know before you submit your two-and-a-half-minute submission is that before it even gets to me, Dan Harmon, it will be cleared or eliminated by something called Standards and Practices. That's right, guys. It's our old friend, Standards and Practices, again. S&P is a department that operates independently of the network and which, in addition to filtering content for the things you and I understand as profane, has recently entered the business of determining what may or may not be offensive to individuals or groups. You might be surprised what won't make it through that filter. I want to make sure you know exactly what you're up against before you spend a minute working for us. Think of our show as a prisoner to whom you are sending a letter. If there's anything in it that involves real freedom, it won't even get here. The best example I can give you and the reason I'm writing this article is a submission from Aaron Yanda and Matt Sloan called Morning Radio Mysteries. Aaron and Matt are the creators of Chad Vader and some of my favorite content at Channel 101. They made a show as a special favor to me in spite of having bigger fish to fry. I was embarrassed today to learn that you won't be seeing their pilot there, not because of anything recognizable to me as offensive, but because of something recognizable as potentially offensive by someone I've never met, someone in standards and practices. In Aaron and Matt's show, a pair of morning radio DJs antagonize a rock star by insinuating that he is a homosexual. Here's the thing to you. 
a gay person might be a neighbor or a family member or a mailman or your worst enemy, but above all, a human being. To corporations, which are not human, a gay person is not human. A gay person just represents a special interest group, a monstrous unseen burden, a troll under the bridge waiting to pounce and savage their checking accounts with sponsor boycotts, bad press, and lawsuits. The audience, in general, be they black, white, gay, or all of the above, represent a dangerous game for media corporations. They need your full attention. They need your eyeballs and your wallets, but they don't want to be responsible for you. They want you watching six hours of TV a day, but they don't want your life touching theirs. Your humanity, your opinions, your mind, the person you really are. To them, it's just a form of liability. So they err on the side of caution. I suppose if you were them, you'd do the same thing. Reason number 70 to be thankful you're broke. You don't have to live in constant fear of people taking your precious treasure. Well, I'm proud of the stuff I've made for this show, I want you to watch it. If they edit me in any significant way, I will tell you. And if they don't edit me, let me tell you. I will walk away because I've been working that way for 34 years and it works. But I'm writing this blog to let you know that the user-generated material is not exactly going to be pure expression of the human experience. The really cool raw stuff that people make is still going to be at Channel One or YouTube or whatever or what have you. This is acceptable TV. The acceptable part of the title isn't all that ironic. I am a property of Viacom. If you're going to send me something good, disguise it from the minds of the mediocre. Bury the file in the cake. Be honestly tamed, secretly genius, or shamelessly hack. Do everything I tell you not to do at Channel 101. Think twice. Calculate. Arbitrate. Compromise. When in doubt, follow your fear. Self-censor. Don't even try to ride the line. You'll be over it before you start, and they won't tell you until you're finished. They never know what they don't like until you're done with it. I have no doubt that genius will slip through the filter at some point, but let's face it, joyless crap will make it through more often and will be heavily rewarded. We haven't even started, and joy is already being punished. Sorry, Matt. Sorry, Aaron. Welcome to TV, Internet. So, in the conglomeration of two blog posts from Dan Harmon, therein lies the problem with acceptable TV. The problem is, they tried to do the Internet on TV. You can't do the Internet on TV. The Internet is the wild, wild west, as is evidenced by YouTube and the many, many videos I've seen of content that I've seen elsewhere before. TV, on the other hand, is filtered. So... You may get some good stuff, but you're not going to get the premium stuff. The eight episodes were never rerun on television. Most of the members of the Department of Acceptable Media have gone on to bigger and better things and do not list this show on their CVs, nor do they apparently want to. They were for a time available on Prime Video and iTunes, but they've since been removed and are largely forgotten. Episodes do exist on the internet unofficially, if you know where to look.
As for Channel 101, it still exists as a community-driven nonprofit film festival on the internet with the goal of providing an accessible space for creative filmmakers to experiment with style, story, and technique free from commercial restraints. Acceptable TV worked for all the reasons that a show like that would work. It also didn't work for the reasons that a show like that couldn't work. It was good enough for independent filmmakers, but not for commercial television, even if it is basic cable. VH1 was looking for the next best week ever. Instead, they came up with this thing on TV. And now I need a palate cleanser. Here's the Russell Westbrook report. Russell Westbrook, he can sure score triple doubles, but he sure as hell can't think straight when he's trying to make a pass. It's the Russell Westbrook update. All right, guys. When we left off on December 29th, Russ and the Clippers played the Memphis Grizzlies. And the Clippers were 117-106 winners. Russ had 14 points and 6 rebounds and 6 assists. On New Year's Day against the Heat, Russ played 18 minutes in a 121-104 win and scored 8 points. On January 3rd against Phoenix on the road, the Clippers won 131-122. to Russ had 6 points in 18 minutes. On January 5th against the Pelicans, the Clippers won 111-95. to Russ had 8 points in 22 minutes played. On January 7th against the Lakers, the Lakers beat the Clippers by 3 points. Russ had 7 points. On January 8th against the Suns, the Clippers won 138-111. to Russ had 9 points and 7 assists. And then recently on January 10th, the Clippers beat the Raptors 126 to 120. Russ had six points in 14 minutes. So as we're recording this, the Clippers are playing right now against the Grizzlies on Friday, January 12th. And the Clippers are basically beating the crap out of the Grizzlies. They're up by 18 points with about five minutes to go. Russ has 12 points. Right now in the standings in the Western Conference, the Clippers are 24 and 13, so they're going to go to 25 and 13 after this game. Right now, they're two games back of the Timberwolves and the Thunder for the top spot in the West. The Nuggets are right behind as the three seed at 26 and 13, a game back of first place. The Kings are 23 and 15, along with the Pelicans, so they share the fifth slot. But right behind it, you got the Mavericks at 23 and 16, four games out. So only four games separate the top seven teams in the Western Conference right now at the time we're recording this. So that's the Russell Westbrook update for right now. Couple more bullet points before we wrap this thing up. Had the series actually continued to a second season, Dan intended that every creator of a web winner show through the first eight-week cycle would show their work back-to-back in a special ninth episode and have the audience choose which of these creators should be added as official acceptable TV creators on the legitimate show in the next season. Well, that's going to do it for this acceptable podcast, but if you want to relive some of our original works, you can go over to it was a thing on tv.com 
listen to the 445 episodes that preceded this one. All sorts of great bonuses, including mini-sodes, live shows, extended versions, the whole works. We're on all social media, including Instagram, Threads, Mastodon, at It Was A Thing On TV, except for Facebook, where we are at It Was A Thing On TV Podcast. Remember, if you want to follow us on Mastodon, you have to go to It Was A Thing On TV at tvwatch.party. Now, one thing to note, and this is going to affect you listeners on the Podbean feed, but I finally should mention this here on the regular feed. Now, if you've noticed, if you listen to the omnibus cuts over at Place to Be Nation Pop, you notice they're now on Fridays instead of Wednesdays. It changed from Wednesdays to Fridays because, yeah, I Wednesdays, I mean, the Wednesday cuts were 12 days apart from the recording to when they were posted. So I thought, well, why don't we just change it to Friday so they can now be up to date, day and date with the Podbean feed here. So... Andy Afferton agreed to do that. Thank you, Andy. So now we are in sync with the actual posting schedule on there. So that's pretty good. So if you want to listen to the previous episodes, all the on the bus cuts are there at Place Be Nation Pop, just to let you know. And as a reminder, we are on wherever fine podcasts can be streamed, Apple, TuneIn Radio, iHeart, Audible, wherever and we're also on youtube don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel hit the notification bell so you can stay up to date on all of our entries on the channel including what's coming up next week because your boys got a birthday this week oh finally we're gonna get to watch it i'm so excited because next week we're gonna see Chuck E. cheese in the galaxy 5000 what the fine folks at Funimation were doing when they weren't doing Dragon Ball. Now, I'm curious. How much drugs were taken when they came up with this? Well, it's Texas, so a lot. Well, there's one thing I do know. You can do it, do it, do it, do whatever you want in Galaxy 5000. Do whatever you want. <laughs> So that's going to be the Monday episode, and the Thursday episode is going to be something, all I can say, it's very appropriate that we're kicking off an election year with this show. What happens when there's a female president? Hilarity ensues. So those are the two episodes that are coming up next week. We hope you will enjoy them with us here at It Was a Thing on TV. For Greg, for Mike, I'm Chico. Thank you ever so much for listening. Please be kind to one another, and we will see you for the next one. Row! I'm Robert James Bachman. 25 years ago, I took the world's most adorable kitten photo. Today, kitten calendars are a $75 million a year industry, and I rule it with an iron fist. One of these young people will be my next photographer. The other four can kiss my ass. This week is gonna be easy. Psych. You're gonna be photographing a kitten for one of the most important months of the year, December. Hold it. Ground rules. No Christmas. No snow. Oh, he did not say what he may or may not have said. We were all up at the crack of dawn to get our kittens out of the kitten stable. 
then there was Sarah. That bitch woke up late. Oh god. Kitty. Kitty. This is my dream, and I'm watching it all slip away. I'm going with a winter solstice. It's like a pagan Christmas. Oh, New Year's Eve, son! That's in December. Think about it. The camera. Oh, yeah, you've done this before. Come on, give me that kitty. Bitch, give me stuff! Stuff! You think you're better than me, bitch? How do you all feel about your calendar pages? He's on vacation. I get it. What is this? It's a winter solstice. It's winter bull. I'd party with this guy. Pearl Harbor Day. My father died in Pearl Harbor. He would have liked this. Good job, Randy. Sir, I woke up late. Sarah, this is the calendar business. We don't do late. Sarah. Don't say it, Mr. Bachman. You're stumped. And you better hold tight to that tree branch, Dahlia, because you're not exactly hanging in there. Randy, you win this week, which means next week you'll be using my top kitten, Sprinkle Mist. This little will look cute in front of a gas chamber. Get some sleep, you're gonna need it. Kiss my ass, all right? Get out of here. Go to kittencalendar.tv for photos of kittens and a free Robert James Bachman video ringtone. Kiss my ass. Ding.